I want to begin by reading the passage, in case I uh, don't get to all of it. At least we'll have read it. So let's begin by looking at John chapter 6, verses 14. I'm going to back up. I know we discussed 14 and 15 last week, but we're going to review those a little bit. We'll start at John 14 and read through at this point in time, just verse 21, and then we'll flip over to Matthew. All right, let's begin John chapter 6, verse 14. It says, this is right after the feeding of the 5,000, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain, himself alone. And we are told over in Mark 6:46. I will not read Mark's account for you, but he also talks about what we're going to be discussing today. He told us he went into the mountain to do what do you think? Exactly. Jesus went into the mountain to pray. Then verse 16 says, And when even, or evening, was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea. So the disciples went down. He went up and they went down. And entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark. Not only did they go down, it was dark. And Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, which is about three and a, or three and a half miles, they see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. They went down, it was dark, and now here's the dread. But he said unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship. That's exactly what a person who wants to be saved has to do, is willingly receive Jesus Christ into their ship, into their heart. And immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. That is the deliverance. I wanted to be like Dr. Calder and have everything start with D. (laughs) The same letter. All right, let's look now over at Matthew's account because he tells us some things that John did not. And for Matthew, we'll begin at verse 22. Again, right after the feeding of the 5,000 men beside women and children, so probably somewhere around 15 to 20,000 people were fed with those two fish and five barley loaves. Verse 22 of Matthew 14 says, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went where? up into a mountain apart to pray and when the evening was come he was there alone but the ship was now in the midst of the sea tossed with waves for the wind was contrary we are also told that the wind was contrary in mark's account well the wind was blowing against them Verse 25 says, And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. It's amazing. This is a most incredible miracle for someone to walk on top of a stormy sea. And all that the, the gospel writer is inspired to say about it is Jesus was walking on the sea. It's amazing. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled. You can imagine. Saying, It is a spirit. Or it is a ghost. And I thought how appropriate we're studying this lesson today of Halloween. We're going to be talking about they thought they saw a ghost. (laughs) 
<laughs> and they cried out for fear. Verse 27, but straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And then verse 28 we'll read later, that's about what Peter did. All right, our lesson this morning is actually the sequel to the miracle of the Lord's miraculous feeding of the great crowd of some 15 to 20,000 people with the little lad's lunch. The Lord in that miracle had most definitely, positively manifested his divine creative power. And both the crowd and his own disciples were very impressed with that miracle. We know this because if you go back to John and look at verse 14, it says that they all said, this is of a truth, that prophet which should come into the world. Now that is a reference back to a messianic prophecy found in Deuteronomy 18:15, where Moses said, Moses under inspiration of God the Holy Spirit had predicted that the Lord God would raise up a prophet like unto him, like unto Moses. And every Jew understood that that spoke of the coming Messiah. Now, remember that many of the people in this crowd, which was miraculously fed, were probably Passover pilgrims who were on their way to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices into the temple, in the temple to remember the Passover. So if they were on their way to celebrate the Passover, they were thinking in terms of what prophet? Who was, who was the main prophet concerning the Passover? Yes, exactly. Moses was the one who delivered the people from the, the Israelites from the Egyptians. He had performed many miracles, 10 fantastic miracles before Pharaoh. And then um, <clears throat> on the last one, um, they had to kill, the Jews had to kill an unblemished lamb and put the blood on the doorposts of their homes. And then the angel of death would pass over anyone who was covered with the blood, but all the firstborn of the Egyptians died. So Pharaoh finally got the picture and he let the people go. He let the Israelites go. So they, the people are on their way to remember this celebration. And so they're thinking in terms of Moses. Moses had performed many miracles, hadn't he? And what had he also done that Jesus had just done? Moses for 40 years in the wilderness had fed the people miraculously every day well except you know once a week but at six days out of a week for 40 years the people were fed with manna from heaven and Moses had also fed them quail and he struck a rock and water came out of it so since Jesus had just uh, likewise been performing many miracles and also had just miraculously fed the people they're quite naturally beginning to equate him with Moses and they're seeing that he fit this description, this messianic prophecy that God would raise up unto, unto himself, uh, unto the people, a prophet like Moses. And they were right in saying that he was the fulfillment of that prophecy. He was, wasn't he? He was indeed the Messiah. But what they didn't realize is how much greater, how much infinitely greater than Moses he is. They didn't realize that he is the very son of God incarnate. They didn't get that. And they didn't understand, the people didn't understand, and neither did his men, that they should have really fallen down before him and worshipped him. And if they weren't already saved, they should have cried out to him for mercy. They were still blind to his true person, to his true light, to who he was. They only saw him as a prophet. They saw him as a wonderful teacher and a healer, but still just as a man. They saw him as a political deliverer who they now wanted to crown king. 
so that he would lead them. Their reasons were carnal. Their reasons were not spiritual. They wanted him to be king so that he would lead them in a victorious rebellion against the Herodian dynasty and also against Rome. It's interesting to notice the two offices of Christ that the people recognized. If you look in verse 14, they realized he was a prophet, and they were right, and now they're ready to crown him king. You see, in the, in the two verses, 14 and 15, prophet and king. But there is another vital office Jesus possesses, which they failed to recognize. And this is the office that the Jews still to this day fail to recognize. When they're still looking for their Messiah, they don't realize he has come in the person of Jesus Christ. But when the kind of Messiah they are looking for will be a prophet like unto Moses, and he will be the king of the Jews. They're looking for the king of the Jews. But they don't understand his third office, which is what? Priest. Prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is all three. But the people didn't understand, and the Jews today still don't understand, that the Messiah, the true Messiah, had to officially, um, had to first officiate as priest, interceding on their behalf as their sacrifice for sin. The people did not understand, and the Jews still don't understand, that a cross had to precede the crown. And that they had to accept him as savior, as the sacrificed lamb whose blood was shed on their behalf before they would be a part of his kingdom. Neither did they realize that they could not make him a king. How foolish. He is God. He is the second member of the Trinity. And here they're going to try to force him to be king simply by placing some man-made crown on his head, it's really ludicrous. He was already a king. <laughs> he didn't need them to make him a king, especially not their kind of king that they wanted. But he was born a king, and the wise men knew that much, didn't they? They were truly wise men. Because when they went to Herod, after Jesus was born, remember the question, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Jesus was born king of the Jews. He's king of kings and lord of lords. So anyway, to prevent, he perceived, he knew the people wanted to make him their kind of king. So to prevent that from happening, um, he, he um, did two things. They were trying to force him, but he turns it around and he forces, number one, he forces his own men into a boat. He has to remove them and he has to remove them quickly from the influence of the crowd because they were being swept along with the excitement of finally, after two years, finally seeing him being accepted as Messiah. So he had to coerce them. We'll look at that. He had to constrain them to get into the boat. So that's the, the first force. And the second force is he had to force the crowd, the multitude, away, which he did. Our lesson today is going to involve a study of the events which occurred after the Lord put his men on a boat, told them to go across to the other side. Remember where they are? They had been in Capernaum. If you have a, a map in the back of your Bible, you want, might want to have a finger there so you can flip back and forth and look at a map that says Israel at the time of Jesus Christ. And you'll see where the Sea of Galilee is. And I want you to look at the north of it and you'll see where Capernaum is. That's where they were when the disciples had returned from their first mission venture without Jesus and they had met him they had rendezvoused in Capernaum which is on the north side 
the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. They had been there. They had crossed over. He said, we need a little time of uh, R&R, rest and relaxation together. So they had crossed over in a boat over maybe about a three or four mile trip to the area of Bethsaida, which you will see on the, um, the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd, seeing they were leaving, ran around the top part of the lake and beat them there. So they never did have their time of R&R, did they? They never had that. Okay, now, then they had a long, busy day. They fed the 5,000, et cetera, et cetera. Now it's evening, dark, and he puts them on a boat near the shore there, somewhere near Bethsaida. You see it on your map. And he tells them to go back across over to Capernaum. And he goes up into the hills on the, on the uh, eastern side there of the Sea of Galilee. There are hills, mountains that go straight up almost from the sea. And today it's known as the Golan Heights. But you can go up in those mountains or those hills really is what they are. And you can actually look down and see the sea. It's a beautiful sight. You can see this, the Sea of Galilee down below. So he's up there and, um, and they're in the boat. And we're going to be discussing what happens. The name of our lesson is, I've already told you, Cresting and Resting the Stormy Sea. We're going to look at four chronologically recorded miracles, the next four that happen. Some people say there are five. I'll tell you what the fifth may be. This lesson is important for many, many reasons. There is so much. This lesson is inexhaustible. I think you could, somebody could take it and teach on it and preach on it for a long, long time. There are so many different lessons in this lesson. But one important um, reason for, for um, this, looking at this lesson is because this is the very first time that the 12 apostles actually declared Jesus to be the Son of God. Now, they had been through another storm. Remember back in Mark chapter 4, we had looked, I don't know when it was, if it was this year or last year, we had looked at the other storm, but he was with them in the ship in that storm. Remember, but he was, he was sleeping, got up, said, peace be still. And then they had said, what manner of man is this? Still a man. But now, after this storm, they, they actually fall on their faces before him and say, thou art truly the son of God. So that is why this lesson is so important. This really taught them the most, this particular storm. All right, we have an interesting contrast, and I tried to point that out to you as I read the text, in directions here, because the disciples go where? Down to the sea, and it literally is down because there's a sloping hill that they probably fed the 5,000 there, and then they actually went down to the sea, and the Lord goes up into the mountain to apart from everybody else to pray and this is a picture of what would happen later in the lives of the apostles when jesus would a year from this point jesus would depart from them remember this is the time of the passover the very next passover a year later would be when he would be the lamb of god sacrificed for our sins and then 50 days later he would depart from them he would go up into heaven to be with his father and pray for them and pray for you and I as we encounter the storms of life down here below. So this is sort of a spiritual picture of what would be happen happening. Remember, too, they had just physically fed how many people or how many men, does the scripture say? 5,000 men. Of course, they had been the hands. They had been the distributors. That feeding was in Christ's power. But go over, if you would, and after they fed, they encountered this storm that we're going to be looking at. But go over right now to the book of Acts, if you will. 
A year, a little more from a, a, a year from this point, we have recorded for us in the book of Acts, if you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 4, we will find that these very same men, these disciples, spiritually feed how many men? And the number of the men was about 5,000. Isn't that interesting? Well, we know in that crowd that day there were also women and children. So it could be that they spiritually fed with the gospel message about Jesus Christ maybe 15,000 people. Of course, they were fed in the power of God the Holy Spirit, but the disciples were the, the distributors. They were the mouthpieces in this case. And it's interesting that just like the account we're looking at now in our chronological study after they had physically fed 5,000 and encountered a storm, after the day of Pentecost when they spiritually fed 5,000 were saved, accepted their message, they also encountered a storm, the storm of persecution. We know that the apostles all eventually were, were martyred for their faith, except for the, well, even John was persecuted for his faith. No doubt, each of them remembered back to this particular storm on the Sea of Galilee and took comfort in knowing that even though the Lord Jesus was no longer physically with them, they knew from this experience that where was he? He was up on high, interceding on their behalf, and he was there to help him, help them. And we'll see that he actually comes to them, comes right up to them. And I don't want to spoil that by telling you what that means right now, but we'll get to it in a little bit. Jesus understood that the influence the crowd could have on his men would be, could be very, very bad. It could be devastating. It could be totally devastating. And he knew it was therefore very important for him to separate them from their susceptibility to the wrongly motivated political plans of the people. If they had stayed there, what do you think might have happened? They would have definitely, I, I think maybe one of them was already influenced by what the crowd wanted to do. One of them named Judas Iscariot. But if he had left his disciples there, they very possibly would have been disillusioned with him as, as well as the crowd. If you take a sneak preview at John six sixty six, remember how I told you you can remember that verse? After he gives the Bread of Life sermon, which we will study starting next week, the, the, uh, the rest of the crowd was very disillusioned in him because, see, they hadn't seen what he did in the storm. They didn't, they didn't come to the point in the storm that the disciples came to, that they understood who he was, that he could walk on water, and that he truly was the Son of God. And the crowd, after hearing the Bread of Life sermon, it says, look at verse 66, it says, uh, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Very possibly, if he had allowed his men to stay there and be influenced by the crowd, they too may have turned and walked from him, thinking he had been just a man and they had been very disillusioned that he would not accept the crown, he would not become their king, he would not lead them against the Herods and against Rome, and they too may have been in this crowd that turned and walked no more for him, with him. So a storm was very, very vital and very important in their lives. 
And we know that he had to force his disciples to leave because in Mark 6.45 and also in the Matthew account, the word constrained is used. And in the Greek, it is a very strong word, meaning that he had to coerce them. He had to actually force them to leave because they did not want to. They wanted to stay there and crown him king. But we have to commend the men because what did they do? Even though they had to have a little push in doing it, they did obey him. They did get in the boat. They probably didn't want to be separated from him again. Remember, they had just been separated from him as they had gone out in pairs on that first mission trip without him. And they had just been reunited with him and were so excited in telling him some of the things that they had seen and done on that first mission venture. And then he said, well, let's talk some more. Let's just cross over and get away, have a time alone. And then, of course, the crowd followed them. And they've never had that time, that quality time with him. So they probably did not want to be separated from him. But he knew they needed to be away from the crowd. He also knew that he needed to be alone with God in prayer. And perhaps he wanted to give them some time out there in the boat so that they could reflect upon the miracle that they, they had just been participators in. This was a fantastic miracle when he met, fed 15,000 people with a little lad's lunch. Perhaps he wanted them to think about that miracle. So he put them on a boat, and he told them to go ahead of him to the other side, back over to Capernaum. And it was really just a short little trip. I asked my husband, how long would it take to go from Bethsaida over to Capernaum on a boat? It's not very far. He said, well, probably you have about four or five men, maybe six at the most, rowing at one time. He said probably take an hour, two hours at the very most, maybe an, around an hour and a half. But as we will see, and remember that about a third of the disciples were fishermen by trade. They knew this sea. They, it was their home since they were probably born. They, they knew it like the palm of their hand. They were big, rugged, burly fishermen. And uh, they had spent hundreds of hours rowing across this very same lake. But we're going to find out that instead of taking them about one and a half hours, it took them nine. And when after nine hours of hard rowing, they weren't anywhere near Capernaum. They were in the middle of the lake. If you look at your map, you'll see they were way off course after nine hours of rowing. So it took them much longer than they had ever expected. So anyway, after putting his men on the boat and then dismissing the crowds, and I thought about that being another miracle that the crowds left, but then I also looked ahead to what we'll be talking about next week, and I guess after a long day running nine miles around the lake to follow him, and then the mothers having little children and the men being tired, they had a long day, and, and after being fed, and now it was dark, that they obeyed him, and they said, okay, we're going to go back, but... They had every intention of getting up in the morning and coming and finding him and being fed again. After all, Moses fed the people every day. They were expecting a breakfast in the morning. And we'll see that. It's amazing, but they were. He's like unto Moses, we're going to have another breakfast in the morning. He'll provide it. And then they thought, okay, we won't crown him king today, but we're definitely going to do it in the morning. But anyway, the crowd did leave. And then the Lord went up into the mountain to pray. Why would he have needed this time, do you think, to pray? alone with his father. Well, we have to remember that the three temptations that the Lord experienced early in his ministry when he was in the wilderness and fasted and prayed for 40 days and 40 nights, those three temptations were not the only ones that he encountered in his life, not by any means. 
Remember, it tells us that after Jesus defeated Satan in those three temptations, that Satan only departed from him until when? An opportune time. Satan had every intention of coming back and tempting him again and again and again. And one of those opportune times had just now presented itself in the enthusiasm of the crowds and his own men to make him king. You know, actually, if Jesus truly was a man, if he really was just a man, he would have snatched up this opportunity, wouldn't he? This would have been... He could have been the next emperor, you know? He could have... He started out, he had 15,000 people already, and if they marched their way down to Jerusalem and picked up more pilgrim, uh, Passover pilgrims on the way and then got to Jerusalem where literally millions of Jews would go at the Passover time and he could show a few miracles, feed a few million people, they would all, all the men would get behind him and march all the way to Rome. He could be the next emperor. So if he had truly been a man and not who he really is, this would have been his golden opportunity to just accept the crown, the crown and the crowd. <laughs> Actually, this, this temptation was not at all unlike the third temptation in the wilderness when Satan offered Jesus, what? All, all the kingdoms of the world. The people were offering Jesus a crown, which could conceivably be a crown over the whole known world at that time. So this was a great temptation, and he, need, he knew that he needed to go to his father in prayer and pray about this temptation. Of course, we know he's impeccable. That means he cannot sin because his divine nature always takes precedence over his human nature, and as deity, he cannot sin. So he was not, he was tempted, but he would not ever sin. But he, he did pray about it. In his humanity, he prayed about it. This was a great temptation because what did it do? It would bypass the cross. And if Jesus bypassed the cross, where would you and I be today? Hopeless and helpless for all of eternity. We would still be dead in our sins. So he turned his back on this wicked temptation and he went to his father in infinite, infinite communion. What else do you think he must have been praying about while he was up there on that mountain? I think, yes, absolutely, like he is today, fulfilling his role as our intercessor, as our high priest. I believe he, is, um, he was interceding on the behalf of his men. He knew. I think he was also maybe praying for a storm. I think he prayed for his father to send this storm. Now, the last storm, I believe, was satanically induced. When they were going over to see the crude, rude dude in the nude, the Gadarene demoniac, I believe that was a satanically induced storm. But this one, if I had my guesses, I would say was purposely sent by God. Now, the other one, of course, was through God's permissive will. What else do you think he prayed for? I think he prayed for his men to be strengthened in their faith in this storm. And indeed, they were very much so. They were definitely, this is what enabled them to keep on following Jesus even when everybody else turned back. I think he was praying for Peter because you know what Peter is going to do, don't you? You all know the story. Peter's going to jump out of the boat and attempt to do what Jesus did. And he did it for a while. I think he was praying for Peter. And I think he was also um, praying for their safety and all the other things that he prays about for you and I, especially our spiritual growth, our maturity. Well, what time was it? We are told, yes, that it was evening. What you miss in the English translation 
If you go over to Matthew's account for a minute, and if you look at Matthew 14, 15, we learned it was evening when his disciples came to him and said, you know, this was a desert place and the people were hungry. Well, that the Jews had two evenings. They had an early evening, a first evening, which was between 3 and 6 p.m., and that's when the crowds were fed. That's when the people's tummies were growling. And, uh, and then Jesus performed the miracle. And I'd say probably after they fed 15,000 people and then went around and collected all the leftovers, that it was probably around 6 o'clock p.m. Then the second evening you can look at is in Matthew 14, verse 23. That was somewhere between 6 and 9 p.m. And, and that was when he took the men somewhere between 6 and 9 and put them on a boat. So it was beginning to get dark. I would guess it was somewhere probably around 7 or 8 at night that he put his men on a boat to send them across to Capernaum. And if it was 7, maybe they could have gotten over there before the sun totally went down. Because like I said, it maybe take about an hour and a half. And, uh, and that's, he went up to pray to God above. And we're told it was dark. And that's in, in John six seventeen. So it was nighttime when all of this happened. We know the men, therefore, well, I'll tell you why we knew the men were rowing for around eight or nine hours because he doesn't come walking out to them on top of the water until the fourth watch of the night, which is right before the sun rises. So it was probably around 5 or 5.30, so they'd been rowing all night and didn't get anywhere. They got further away from where they were going than when they began the trip. But it also means that Jesus spent about eight or nine hours in prayer for his men. Now, as we think about the Lord's disciples out there in the lake on their own without Jesus in the dark, it really becomes a picture of their spiritual vision at this point in their lives. They really did not yet know the true significance of who Jesus was. They were still in the dark about his deity. We may think that they would have understood who he was as the creator himself after they saw him turn water into wine. You'd think that? You probably wouldn't either. Put yourself in their sandals. You're looking at a man and he's God? That's pretty tough. You have to admit, to, to look at a man and think that he is God incarnate, that's hard. That takes a lot of faith, even after seeing miracles like turning water into wine. But they, had, they, they knew about Moses. Moses was just a man, right? What had he done? He turned water into blood. All the, all the water of, the, of Egypt had been turned into blood. He had done that. And they had seen Jesus raise two people from the dead by this point in time, right? Two at this point. They haven't seen Lazarus yet, but um, they had Elijah. And Elisha, prophets of God, godly men, men of God, but yet still men. They had also raised people from the dead. And now you think, oh, well, surely he, they know he's the creator God himself because he's just fed all these people. But again, they had Moses as their example. Moses had fed the people, even though it was really God using Moses, um, for 40 years, and a lot more than 15,000 people, he had fed millions of people for 40 years. And he had also struck a rock, and out of the rock came water. So they're still in the dark concerning Jesus. They still see him as a man. Yes, they acknowledge he's the Messiah, but they're still thinking that the Messiah is just like a glorified prophet, still a man. And how do we know this? How do we know that the, uh, 
the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 didn't do what it should have done in their minds. We know because we're told. If you look at Mark 6.52, Mark 6.52, it tells us that they, the disciples, understood not concerning the loaves, the bread, the barley. They didn't understand, but their heart was hardened. What he, sh- what he had done should have been an obvious disclosure to them of who he is, but they failed to understand. And I don't come down very hard on them because I probably would have been in the same boat <laughs> with them. The miracle had not made its intended impression on their hearts. They still saw him only as a man with God-given powers who could deliver them from Rome and give them the wonderful opportunity of sitting on his right and left hand when he came into his, his kingdom. So we even learned that an, a disciple and an apostle with a capital A of Christ can develop a hardened heart in this respect if he fails to respond to the spiritual lessons that should be learned in the course of his life and in his ministry. If, if you and I, if we go to church regularly and hear good Bible preaching and teaching, you and I hear over and over and over again how we are to be the salt and light of the earth, how we are to go out into the world and share the gospel with others, how we are to live the surrendered life, how we're to die to self, how we're to be living sacrifices, how we're just to, for us to die and live as Christ and to die as gain, all of that. We hear that over and over again. And yet, if we don't act on that, what are we doing? We're hardening our hearts. Is it possible for Christians, even apostles, to harden their hearts? Oh, yes, all of us do it. We all have areas in our lives where we have hardened our hearts. I've talked to women who say they're going to divorce their husband. They know that it's wrong. Christian women who know it's wrong, they say, yes, I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. What is that? Hardening their heart? Have you met people who know a sin? In their, I mean, God's will is pretty clear. It's all written out for us. They know something is wrong to do, but they say, I know, but I'm, just gonna, I'm willing to live with consequences and I'm going to do it anyway. That is hardening one's heart. What if God calls you to do something and you say no? The same thing, hardening your heart. You might come up with all kinds of excuses like I'm too shy, I don't have enough education, I can't do that, blah, 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 blah. But if he tells you to do it and you don't, you're hardening your heart. So there are ways that even Christians do indeed harden our hearts. When, they went, when the disciples went down into the boat, they not only went down, but it was dark because they had not yet come to realize who it was they were following. The miraculous feeding of the 5,000 had just been to them another wondrous miracle, but not one which made them see Jesus as the very living son of the living God. What did it take for them to know that, to know that Jesus was the living son of the living God? It took a storm. You know what? It took a storm in my life to get me to see who he was, too. Oftentimes, it's the darkest right before the dawn, isn't it? And we'll see that's another truth in this lesson. Well, the darkness soon turned to dread. Um, Soon after the disciples departed from the eastern shore there of of the lake, the Sea of Galilee, In a boat, a strong wind, we are told, a strong wind erupted, and they were blown off course or blown off the shore about three or four miles, which is 25 or 30 furlongs, we're told. 
The men began to row, but the problem was that the wind was contrary to their direction. And it kept pushing them farther and farther away from their destination, which was Capernaum, and closer to disaster. Now, again, if you look at your little map of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see to the north there's like a, there's a river that comes out of the north end of the Sea of Galilee. On both sides are hills, so there's sort of a valley. What would happen on some occasions would be that a wind would develop and whip down through that valley, and it would hit the Sea of Galilee suddenly. And what it did to the apostles was it blew them south because they wound up in the middle of the lake. They're not, they weren't trying to go south at all. They're trying to go just from Bethsaida over a little bit to Capernaum, way up in the north. But that wind came down and it was blowing against them all the way. What I have to commend the disciples for in this situation is maybe their faith was not what it should have been, but their obedience was terrific. Because what they could have done was let the wind just blow them, keep blowing them, and it would have blown them over to the area of the Gadarenes. I know you have to look at your maps to realize all what I'm talking about. But if it kept blowing them, they would have gotten to the safety of the shore on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. But they were determined to obey Jesus. He said, I want you to go back over to Capernaum. So there they are, rowing like crazy against the wind and getting nowhere getting further and further away from their destination. But at least I have to commend them for being obedient. <clears throat> now, do you think that Jesus knew a storm was coming when he put his men on the boat? I th- of course he did. He's God. He knows the end from the beginning. I think he knew a storm was coming. Absolutely. That's the reason he did put them on the boat. So why, why would he deliberately send his men into danger? Well, actually... Although that is how it may have appeared to his men as they're in that boat and they're in that terrible storm and how it may sometimes appear to us when we're going through storms, actually the opposite was true. Jesus was not endangering them. He was actually rescuing his men from a far greater danger and that is the danger of being swept along by the winds of the excited crowd. You see, it was really the crowd who had the contrary winds because the crowd was trying to blow them contrary to the will of God. And it was the the storm that got them on the right track again. So you get it? You understand it? All right, Jesus deliberately, therefore, directed them into the storm because he knew that they were safer in the storm, in God's will, than they would have been on land with the crowd out of God's will. Sometimes God will purposely send you and I through storms. And we might think that they are terrible, and we might think they're just absolutely horrible, and that we can hardly stand it. Have you ever been in storms like that? You know, this life is full of storms. Have you noticed? If you have lived long enough, you've noticed. Life can hit you with some pretty rough storms. And we might question his purpose, and we might question his love, and all the above, but what we might not see. Remember Dr. Calder talked about what true wisdom is? What is true wisdom? Seeing life from God's perspective. If we can try to see things from God's perspective, what a lot of people going through storms fail to see is the danger that we may have encountered if he had left us to our own choices. 
the disciples would have made the wrong decision if they had stayed with the crowd. They, as I said, would have eventually, with the crowd, turned from him. They would have been just dis as disillusioned with him, and they would have walked away. But by sending them into a storm, he was able to teach them some very, very important lessons, lessons that enabled them to finally realize who he is. Do storms teach us a lot? They do. I don't like them, and I don't like to pray for them. Do you pray for storms in your life? I surely don't, but I've been making a mistake because I've been praying for um, more compassion. You're studying the Lord's compassion and how he looked upon the crowds and had compassion. I have to admit I don't always have a lot of compassion. And I've been praying to have more compassion. And that's sort of, a that's sort of like in the same league of play, praying for patience <laughs> because the Lord has put me through some storms this last year. And this last one has really, it, I have learned a lot. In the last three weeks with this terrible pain, I did not know the body could hurt so much as I have found out. You know, just one little area of your body can just bend you all out of shape, can it? It's, it's just awful. And it's given me more compassion for those of you that are suffering from pain. And a lot of us are. How many of you suffer from some kind of pain in your life, physical pain? It's not fun, isn't it? Well, I have learned through this storm. And the Bible says in everything gives thanks and for everything gives thanks. Not just in the storm, but for the storm, we are to give thanks. And I am able to say, thank you, Lord, that I have experienced this awful pain so that I can have more compassion for people who live with it all the time. Some of you, it doesn't go away. Praise the Lord, mine did go away. It may return, but it has gone away for now. But, you know, as we get older, we learn how to have more empathy for one another, don't we? You know, sometimes when you're young, you can say you, you feel sorry for somebody, but you don't. If you haven't been there, you really don't. And it just means so much more to have somebody who's been there come to you and say they understand, doesn't it? And so there's some really good things about age. <laughs> One of them that isn't so good is called hot flashes. And I'm... <laughs> I am having one right now. I want to take my Halloween costume off there. <laughs> All right. If we search the Bible, we'll find that there are various kinds of storms. We've talked about this before. There are storms of correction and there are storms of perfection. A lot of storms are just because we live in a sin-cursed world, like hurricanes and typhoons and things like that. But we, who, what kind of storm did Jonah experience? Storm of correction. He was told by God to go to Nineveh. He, God said, go. He said, no. God said, oh. <laughs> But this storm, just like the last storm we looked at with the disciples, this, these were storms of perfection. Because in both situations, the disciples were doing what Jesus had told them to do. He was the one that they got in the boat to go over to the uh, Gadarene demoniac. They were being in obedience to him when that first storm came. And here, even though they were reluctant to get into the boat, at least they did get into the boat, and they obeyed him. So the, this was a storm of perfection. Jesus had to further teach his men some very valuable truths. And remember, this last year of his ministry is all about them. The crowds might be there, and they learn things too, but basically he's involved in teaching and training and spiritually maturing his 12 men. That's what it's all about. So he had to further test them to perfect their faith. He had already tested them in that previous storm, but in that case, he had been with them in the boat as the captain of their ship. Now, however, he's going to test them in a storm when he is 
not with them. Would they realize that he did not have to physically be present with them in order to still be the captain of the ship? It was something they would need to understand because in just one year, he would no longer physically be present with them. And they would have to trust him through all kinds of storms, even though they would no longer visibly see him. They would have to learn that he was with them, guiding them, protecting them, praying for them at all times, even though he was up on high with God the Father. He, so he's leading them step by step to greater faith. He's teaching them to walk by faith and not by sight, just like he does with us all of our lives. We're learning that same truth more and more. He taught them not to fear the storms when he was with them. Now he's going to teach them not to fear the storms even when he was not with them. We live in the midst of a very stormy world. And it is getting quickly and rapidly worse. Stormier and stormier and scarier and scarier. I, I tell people all the time, I sure am glad I know the end of the book, the end of the, the, the way it ends. Because I could really be fearful otherwise. And people without Christ have every reason to be fearful. But uh, we do live in a stormy world. And we toil and we work hard at trying, too often in our own strength, they were rowing, to row us ourselves across this voyage of life to the other side. Yet sometimes it seems like, doesn't it, the harder we row in our own strength, the further off course we seem to get. At times it looks like we're never going to get to the other side. But we have to remember, no matter how hard it gets, you know, sometimes with that pain, you just maybe feel like, oh, just another hour. If I could just make it another hour, if I could just make it another day. If you've been experienced the loss of a loved one, someone so dear to you, and it's just like every day you're there rowing, rowing. Got to get across this, this uh, voyage of life, this storm. And it's so hard. But what we need to remember every minute of every day of every week and month and year is that he is up there watching us, interceding for us. What I think is interesting is that he was on the hillside watching everything down below, but it was dark. It was, have you ever been in the dark? I'm talking about the dark. Have you ever been in the dark where you can't even, I remember when I was in one of the pyramids in Egypt and they turned the lights off and you talk about dark, you couldn't see your hand if it's this close to your face. I remember after we had the, the storm of 2000, we were all expecting the Y2K, you know, and that didn't happen. But then we here had a, a terrible, was it ice storm, snowstorm, something. I was out of power for a week. And I lived back in the woods, no lights at all. It was dark, no, no stars in the sky, no moon. These guys, you know, back in those days, they didn't have fog lights on their ships. <laughs> there were no lights. There were no lights, uh, you know, street lights around the lake there so that they could see where they were going. I don't know how they even knew where they were going. Yeah, when the stars were out, they knew how to get where they were going. But this, the storm came up, and it was dark. But yet Jesus, we're told, I don't know, in one of the passages, we are told he was watching them. He saw them. How did he see them? It was dark. He sees everything. Does he see what's going on in your life today? Does he know every little problem you're going through, every little heartache, every little... Stroke of the oar that you're making? Yes, he sees it all. He saw it all. He's, and he, was, he, he wasn't missing one single stroke of their oars. He still is the captain of the ship, even though he isn't here with us presently. He sent another one to come beside us who is with us presently. 
but he is still the captain of the ship. As a matter of fact, he's the captain of the sea. And he's the captain of the shore. And he's the captain of the soul, which is surrendered to him. To the disciples and sometimes to us, it probably seemed that Christ had neglected them, that he had just neglected them. Why wouldn't he have gotten on the boat with them? Why did he do this? Why is he up there in safety while we're down here struggling away? That's how it might have seemed to them. And it wasn't until the fourth watch of the night that he actually did come out to them. And as I told you, that was the time of day right where it was the darkest, right before the sunrise, right before the sun sun came out. That's when he started uh, walking out, cresting the waves. I just can't imagine what that was like to see him cresting those waves, rough waves, as if they were nothing but, you know, glass, a glass staircase to come to them. Mm. I would have loved to have, no, I wouldn't because I don't like water. I'm scared of water. I wouldn't have, I would have liked to have watched it from the mountain, okay? (laughs) So anyway, this meant that the disciples were out there rowing away for, like I said, about nine hours. That, that is just amazing. And all of this time they were in fearful darkness. Can you just imagine? It says in Mark 6.48 that they grew distressed in rowing. And these are big, burly men. Many of them fishermen who had done this all their lives. And here they are. It says that, that literally means they were toiling under torture. Their arms were aching. And their bodies were racked with pain. And their minds must have been spinning with questions such as, Why would obedience to Jesus lead us into such danger and into such heavy work? And where is he anyway? Why is he, why didn't he stay with us? Why is he up there and we're down here toiling away? But as I said, oh, you know what else I thought about? It's always good. Do you do this when you do your homework lessons? Do you try to put yourself in the situation? I try to get a really good picture of what's going on. Like some of you have come up with some really good questions. I know one of the groups asked, where did they get the baskets? You know, it's good, it's good to think about actually being there because this, we're not just telling a fairy to- story. This really happened. And it's interesting to think about the fact, uh, all the different facts. I like to do that. But one of them was, I thought, was no wonder they each got a full basket of leftovers. They needed that extra energy. Jesus knew that they would need that extra energy for this long night of out there in the storm rowing away. And I guess they probably ate their basket of leftovers before they left because I don't think they would have had room for them on the ship. Anyway, that was just one of the little thoughts that I had had. But Jesus, oh, and another one I had. You know how the liberals... (laughs) how the liberals always want to take the, the miracles out of the scripture and how they uh, said that there was no miracle in the feeding of the 5,000. It was just that Andrew found this little boy who was willing to pull out his lunch and say, here, I'm willing to share my lunch. And everybody else who was hiding their lunches was convicted. So they all took out their lunches. And so that's how the crowd got fed. There was really no miracle there at all. But that is so ridiculous. If you think about the fact that how many baskets of leftovers were there? Twelve big baskets. Think of laundry baskets because these baskets are big baskets. The next miracle was little baskets. We'll talk about the feeding of the 4,000. But this was big baskets of leftovers. How do they explain that? And how do they explain this? Why would a crowd of people want to make a man king who had simply taught them a good lesson on sharing? You know, isn't that ridiculous? And you know what they do with this miracle of walking on the water? 
I kid you not, they say there were strategically placed stepping stones (laughs) out in the Sea of Galilee. I have seen the Sea of Galilee. You can't have stepping stones out, especially in the middle of it. It's deep. And he would have to be God if he knew where they were. (laughs) And they would have to be mighty high stepping stones, even higher than the roof of this church building. And Peter would have to know where they were, too, because he also had to, would have had to step on those. Um, it's just so. It takes more faith to believe their way than to just believe what the Scripture actually says. All right, so he's watching. He saw that they were distressed in their, in their rowing. Even though it was pitch dark, he saw it all. But he waited. Now, why? Do you ever ask yourself this? And I know you do. Why does God sometimes make us wait? We ask him to do something. We look at all the scriptures that say, ask and ye shall receive. When? I've asked, how long do I have to wait? Why shouldn't he come and just answer our prayers right now? Why doesn't he? Well, have you ever thought that the answer is because he's omnipotent? Do you know what that means? He is all-powerful. Did you ever consider the fact that omnipotence can afford to wait? It can, because it is always sure of success. If you were all-powerful and you knew what you would do in somebody's situation, you could get that, that person to wait because you knew what you would do. You knew if they lost their loved one, like Larry, um, Larry and <laughs> Martha, Mary and Martha with their uh, brother Lazarus. They thought Jesus had blown it because he didn't come in time. He didn't come until their brother was gone. But if you're omnipotence incarnate and you know what you're going to do in this situation, you can afford to wait. He knew that they would learn more and realize more about him and who he was if he waited than if he didn't wait. You see, when he waits sometimes, he receives more glory. We see his hand more evidence when we come to the end of our rope sometimes. Then we see his hand more clearly. We worship him more greatly. Don't you think he received a whole lot more worship after raising a four-day dead Lazarus than he would have just raising a sick Lazarus? Absolutely. So omnipotence can afford to wait because he knows what he's going to do and when he's going to do it and how it's going to reverse everything. Sometimes, as we said earlier, he waits just before it's the very darkest, as he did in this storm. And it is always the darkest right before dawn. He does it so we see his hand of grace, we see his mercy, his love, his power, and and appreciate it all the more fully. So he waited until the dread of the storm grew the darkest in the hearts of his men, and then he came to them. And when they caught sight of his image cresting the tops of those stormy waves, they experienced another dread. And I cannot visualize this I sort of can. I try to in my mind. But what they must... How did they see him? Remember, they probably couldn't see their hand in front of their face, and yet they saw this form cresting the mighty waves, you know, walking. I don't know how he did that, if he went up and down or what he did, but he was on top of the waves. And when you see the children's picture books, by the way, of Jesus walking across the smooth water, and Peter also, totally wrong. The storm didn't stop until when? The storm didn't cease until Jesus and Peter entered into the boat. So when they're walking on the water, you got a storm, and you got wind, and you got spray blowing, rain, the whole bit. Uh, 
but I can't imagine. But how did they, how did they see him? It's dark. How did they see him approaching? Yes. He's the light, isn't he? He's the light of the... I think he was glowing. I think it was the life ho- lighthouse coming out to them. And they could see him. Wouldn't that be... Oh, wouldn't that just be in... But can you imagine the dread in their hearts? These guys have had a rough day. <laughs> they had just come back from their mission out there for two or three weeks, maybe even a month. They were tired from that. Jesus was going to give them a little time of relaxation, but they didn't get it. They'd already crossed over earlier in the day, the sea, gone over, the crowd was there. And so they probably had to organize people in lines so that people could get to Jesus to be healed. You know, you get a crowd, 15,000 people, and people were coming and going all day long. You've got to have somebody organizing the crowd so they're not all pressing on Jesus and you don't have a mob scene. So they're the organizers. All day long they're doing that. And then they see the situation with people hungry. Jesus says, you feed them. So, so they're feeding. Would you, how would you like to cater a dinner to 15,000 people? Do you think you'd be a little tired? And then, you know, usually we have a cleanup committee that's separate from the feeding committee, but they were the same committee. They had to go around and clean up all the leftovers. And then the adrenaline that must have flowed through their bodies as they got so excited because finally the crowd sees who Jesus is and they want to crown him king. And so their adrenaline is up there, and they're excited, and they're happy, and then they go, boom, because he won't do it. And he has to constrain them to get on the boat. And now they've been out there nine hours going against the wind in a rough, scary sea. And then they see see this figure lit up probably approaching them. No wonder they were scared. Here's these big, rough, burly fishermen. Picture the sons of thunder. And Simon the Zealot, you know, slitting Romans' throats. And you've got um, Peter and Judas Iscariot. These are rough, tough guys. But they see this, this thing approaching them, and, and they're scared. And they cry out, and you know what they say? It's a ghost! <laughs> they really thought it was a, a spirit. I imagine that they probably thought, that it was one from the other world, the world of the dead, who was coming to transport them to their watery graves. (laughs) They thought he was an apparition. And now they're more fearful of the figure approaching them than they had ever been of the storm. Why do you think they didn't recognize Jesus? And they didn't. They didn't know who he was. Yes. I believe they didn't recognize him because they weren't looking for him. If they had been out there for those last nine hours praying for him to come to them and rescue them, if they had been saying in prayer, Jesus, we know who you are. You can do anything. You're the God of the impossible. We saw you turn water into wine. We've seen you raise the dead. We've seen you heal from a distance. We have seen you feed the 5,000. We've been thinking about that. We realize who you are. We remember the other storm. Even though you were sleeping, all you got up, and with the power of your word, the whole storm stopped. Please, Jesus, come and rescue us. I think if they'd been praying that, then when they saw him coming, they'd know. Answer to our prayer, he, here he is. Sometimes do we pray and he starts to answer, we don't even recognize the answer to the prayer. <laughs> that's what that's what we're having here sometimes jesus comes to us and we don't even realize he might come to us through another person and that's our that's our rescue and we don't see it 
we fail to, maybe that's because we haven't been praying, praying in faith. But anyway, they didn't recognize him. They thought he was a ghost. Because they did not have strong faith in Christ, they had feared the storm, and now they were fearing the figure approaching them. You know, fear and strong faith are mutually exclusive of one another. As a Christian, we don't need to have the spirit of fear, do we? The only fear we should have is the fear of the Lord. But God has not, hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. So don't be fearful tonight if some little ghost knocks on your door. <laughs> Nothing to be fa- afraid of if we understand who Jesus is. But this was the whole reason for the storm. Jesus was using it to increase the faith of the, his men. He had waited until the situation was so desperate that they realized they could do nothing more of themselves. They were at the mercy of the elements. And now here's something that's really interesting. I forget where this is again. Mark 6. Somebody would go over to Mark 6 and tell me where it says he would have passed by. Because that is an interesting statement. Mark 6. It says when he came out to them he would have passed by. 48, yes, the last, yes, thank you. Right at the end of verse 48 of Mark 6, when he was coming out to them, fourth watch of the night, it says he would have passed by them. Now, that that sounds really strange. But what would have been the purpose of that if if Jesus just walked right by them and went all the way across and didn't stop and rescue them? That doesn't, it's not really literally what it means. He would not have just kept going. What it means is that he was going to come by them. He was going to pass alongside them in there in the boat to let them see him, recognize him, call out to him to save them, to reassure them that they had nothing to fear. But when he started approaching them and was going to pass right by them to be by their side, he heard their frightened, faithless cries, you know, It's a ghost. He heard them, and therefore he cried out to them and said, It is I, be not afraid. Now, it's a shame that in our English we don't really see what he said there. Because what he really said is ego ime. And that is, I am. Period. I am, be not afraid. He was claiming to be the great I am. He was claiming to be none other than Jehovah God. I am that I am. Remember, that's the name that, Mo, that uh, God gave to Moses. You tell them, I am that I am has sent you. He said, I am. And because he is I am, they didn't need to be afraid. When we realize who Jesus is, we don't need to be afraid of anything because he's on our side. Here he is walking on top of this violent water. Can you just picture all this? This violent, turbulent water with, you know, the waves and the wind and the rain. And he comes to them, this apparition, and then he says, I am. Another time in the book of John when he says that, when they come to arrest him, all the Roman soldiers and the temple guard fall over backwards just from the power of those words, I am. So immediately, the sheep recognized his voice. You see, true sheep know the voice of their shepherd and the captain of their ship. And immediately, their fear was, was gone. 
they knew who he was. Now, do you think that there could be a more powerful or a more dramatic display of his deity than this? This is pretty much up there. I'd put this scene right up there with the Mount of Transfiguration, and only two or three of the disciples got to see that. They all got to see this. I can't imagine why Judas Iscariot turned his back on the Lord Jesus Christ after seeing this. This is amazing. Jesus walking on top of the water and saying, I am. Well, there was one display that was much greater than this, and it was when, of course, he burst forth alive from not only his grave clothes, but from a sealed tomb where he had been placed dead three days earlier. But other than that, this is pretty much as powerful a display of his deity that he could give these slow-to-learn men. And immediately, as I said, their fear of seeing a ghost was gone because they knew who it was. Now, he didn't walk on the water in order to teach them how to do that. So don't go out and try to walk on top of water. You probably will not succeed. No matter how much your faith, how strong your faith is, you probably will not succeed unless you have water skis and a motorboat with you. But he did this to demonstrate to them who he is. He did it to demonstrate his sovereign care over his own. He wanted them to learn that there was absolutely no situation that they could encounter from which he could not rescue them, right? Nothing. He wanted them and us to know that even in the midst of this stormy world, when we are toiling away like crazy and seeming to get nowhere, except maybe closer to sinking, he's not only interceding for us, but he is there beside us. Because stormy waves are nothing but a staircase for him to come to us. We will often find that the storms of life, such as if you're facing a serious disease or surgery or financial problems in your life or marital problems, family problems, problems with parents, whatever you're facing, you will find that these storms actually bring us closer to Jesus if we're willing to learn from them. Now, some people, a lot of people, you'll see a storm drive them away from Jesus. But as Christians, their intention from God is to bring us closer to him. He wanted to teach his followers that we can never be in any situation, whether it's calm or storm, that he doesn't know about it and, uh, and where he cannot see us and reach us. He always sees us. He sees everything that's going on in your life. The, the lesson for the disciples is the same lesson for you and I. There is no reason whatsoever for the true child of God to ever fear. Even though life is often stormy and threatening and painful and scary, the storm is never so severe and the night is never so dark that we are in greater danger than Christ's ability to deliver us. Remember that even when we face the final storm, the storm of death, he will deliver us just like he did with Peter. He reached down to Peter and pulled him up and delivered him. He saved him. You know, when we cross over that final storm, that's what's going to happen. He's just going to reach down, pull us up, and deliver us, and we'll be immediately in his presence for all of eternity. Well, let's look at the devotion now. This is uh, what Peter did, and it's only given to us, very interestingly, only by Mark. I mean, Matthew, excuse me. Matthew is the only one who tells us what Peter did. I imagine Mark didn't because you know who uh, really told Mark what to write, other than God, the Holy Spirit, Peter. The book of Mark is really Peter's account of, of his time with Jesus. And he didn't want to talk about this, apparently. <laughs> so we hear it from Matthew. All right, let's look at Matthew 28 to 33. 
It says, after Jesus said, be of good cheer, I am, be not afraid. It says, and Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he, Jesus, said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. First time they ever made that declaration. All right, so the scene shifts to Peter. We see he steps out in faith, he sinks down in fear, and he shouts out in love. Before we criticize him for sinking down, though, I want to at least praise him for being so daring. He did step out originally in faith, and we have to give him credit for that. No man had ever done what he did. Even Moses didn't walk on water. He, he parted the water and walked on dry land. <laughs> but no man before had ever attempted to walk on war, water. But impetuous Peter, you know, I'm not sure how much he thought about this before he, before he did it. Probably didn't think a lot, but he saw Jesus. And we have, to, we have to commend him for his love, his devotion for Jesus, because he just always wanted to be where Jesus was. That's why he followed him the night of his arrest. He, was where, he wound up where he shouldn't have been, warming his hands by a fire and denying the Lord, but he wanted to be close to his Lord. And when he saw Jesus, he said, If it's you, Lord, bid me to come. I want to be with you. Somehow in his mind, I guess he thought it would be safer to be with Jesus in the storm than in the boat. So he said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. And Jesus not only gave him an invitation to come, but that invitation turned into a command. He said, Come. So next minute, Jesus is out of the boat. Now, do you, I don't see any of the other apostles doing that, do you? none of them, none of the rest of them got out of the boat. I told the lady, I would have been with my life jacket in the back of the boat like this. There's no way you would have gotten me out there on that stormy sea. But Peter is Peter. And I I love Peter. You can't help but love Peter. But he jumped out of that boat the minute the Lord said, come. And he did pretty good for a while, didn't he? I don't know how many steps he took. We're not told. Maybe he took one. Maybe he took two. Maybe he took three. Maybe he got halfway there. Maybe he got within an arm's length. But he did what so often we do. He took his eye, he, he, his focus changed. He took his eyes off of Christ and he put his eyes on his circumstances. And the minute he did that, he began to, to sink. And isn't that what happens to so many Christians? It is so sad. They start out in faith. Lord says, come, they come. Okay, I'm going to do great and mighty things for you, Lord. And they take those first few steps and then it's to be a little bit too hard. They look at, oh, all the work this is going to involve, all the time it's going to involve. This is just too hard. I can't do it. I don't have the right gifts, the abilities. And they begin to look at the circumstances instead of Christ, and they begin to sink. We see it all the time. People start out, but they don't finish. It's so sad. It's the number one problem I see happening in the church today. So many people start out in faith and then they, people will pray in their pew for Jesus to save them, but then they don't have enough faith to walk to the front of the church and make it public. It's so sad. But aren't you glad we have a God who loves us in spite of our frailties? <laughs> I am, because I know I've sunk too. 
just like Peter. And I, one thing, another thing we have to commend Peter for, he didn't cry out, Buddha, save me. He didn't say, Allah, save me, because if he had, he'd be at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee looking for those stepping stones. <laughs> he cried out to the right one. And this is one of the shortest prayers in the Bible, but it works. Lord, save me. You know, that's all it takes for a person to be saved. If it comes from the heart, Lord, save me. And he will. And he did. He reached out and he picked up Peter. And that is what some people say is the next miracle. Not only did Jesus walk on water, first miracle, an even greater miracle that Peter walked on the water. Didn't Jesus say, great things I will do, but even greater will you do? Well, that was even greater because Peter wasn't the son of God. It's one thing for the son of God to defy laws of nature for a solid to walk on a liquid, but for a mere man to be able to do it, that was a greater work. And that was miracle number two, that Peter walked on the water. Some say miracle number three is that Jesus, standing on top of the waves, picked Peter up. You know, Peter probably weighed a couple hundred pounds, big old rugged fisherman. And Jesus, you know how hard it is to save somebody who's drowning when they're all wet and everything? But he just reached down, picked Peter up, and set him back on top of the water. That's, that is a miracle. <laughs> so that's miracle number three. Now, miracle number four is one that people, uh, well, no, miracle number four they don't miss, but miracle number five they miss. Miracle number four is that when Jesus and Peter stepped in the boat, what happened? It wasn't because Peter stepped in. It was because Jesus stepped in. The minute he got into the boat, instant calm. Now, this time he didn't even say, peace be still. Last time he said, peace be still. This time just, he just got in the boat and instant calm. No ripples. No after effect, instant calm. But here's the miracle most people miss. When they got in the boat, and I've got to find my place because I've just been speaking here. All right, when they, when they got in the boat, they were instantly, instantly, instantly at their destination. That is in, where is it? Somebody help me out. Where? 34, verse 34, what book are we in? Oh, Matthew. Okay, we've got three books, so maybe it's in more than one. 621 of John. Okay, six t- John 621. Just look there while I'm talking. If that's where it says straightway at the land, they were straightway at the land, whither they were going. Immediately, they were, well, maybe one of the other ones says straightway. But as soon as they got in the boat, they were in Capernaum. They were on the shore of Capernaum. Now, you can look that up in the Greek, and guess what it says? As soon as he got in the boat, they were immediately at the land where they were going. Now, where had they been? They were in the middle of the lake. That's a miracle. But, you know, it's not any great thing for the one who created the natural laws to defy the natural laws. He had just done that by walking on water. You know, he can also suspend the laws of space, matter, and time, can't he? Because he is the creator of space, matter, and time. He annihilated, in this miracle, he annihilated distance. He, they were one place one minute, and beam me up, Scotty. They were somewhere else the next minute, next second. In an instant, in a flash, they were in the, where they were going. He, so he annihilated distance, and he also abolished time. And that is a foretaste of the life that awaits us in another dimension when we will be outside of time and space and matter. 
That's what will be happening in heaven. You'll be on earth and you say, I want to go to Pluto. There you are. <laughs> I don't know. But, it, you know, we will be able to do things like that. It's just, it's exciting. This story, you know, when you just go over an account in the Bible and you tell the story. Oh, the disciples were in a storm. Jesus walked out to the water, got them. Peter walked for a little while, sunk. That's just the surface level of the story. But what we love about the Bible is that there are deeper levels, aren't there? And here's one that is so exciting. There is a deeper level to this story. This story here is a true story. It really happened, but it also gives to us a spiritual picture of Christ and his church. Christ is where right now? He's up in heaven interceding for us while we are in the midst of the storms of life, trying to reach the safety of the shore. But he is with us. Remember, he said, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you in the person of who? The comforter, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete. The name for the Holy Spirit is the paraclete, the comforter. Paraclete in Greek means the one who comes alongside of us. He says, I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit, our paraclete. When, and, you know, this was pictured when he came, was going to come right up beside them. When Jesus himself does finally come, it will be at a time when Christians are really rowing hard against the contrary winds of this world. And are they getting contrary? Are we trying to go down the narrow path against the mass of, the, of humanity going the opposite way? Oh, yes. And it's hard to stand firm sometimes, isn't it? We're rowing against the winds. We're going the opposite direction. When Jesus comes to us, it will be the darkest point in time. You know, when it's right before the dawn. And when he does come, he's going to come to us and instantly, in the twinkling of an eye, in, in just a moment, what are we going to do? Reach the other shore with him. When he comes for us in the rapture, it's just going to be like this ship was instantly on the shore of safety. We're instantly going to be with him on the shore of safety in heaven. And isn't that exciting? Don't you say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. The key is we have to know him. We have to recognize him when he comes. You know, everything has a deeper layer in Scripture. The top layer is just the surface of the water when you go over the story, but underneath are all these rich nuggets of truth for us. And that's why I love to study God's Word. I get so excited about it. Don't you? It's so rich, and it helps me so much as I'm toiling away in this life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for being the great I am. Thank you for the promises that you give to us. You say in your word in Isaiah, and even to your old age, I am. And even to your white hairs will I carry you. You say, I have made you, and I will carry you, and I will deliver you. And, oh, Lord, we thank you for that. Even though our flesh might be weak, our spirit is willing. Father, help thou our faith to grow stronger and stronger because we have such a mighty God into whom we can put our fears and our trust. One day you will come soon and you will 
instantly take us to be with you and what glory there will be i just can't even imagine but how i long for that day even so jesus come quickly